And when they had come to the multitude, a man came to him, kneeling down to him. That's really the external evidence of worship, supplication, and homage. In other words, this man was showing Jesus his great esteem for the Lord. By the way, the words that are used for worship, that are translated worship in both Old and New Testaments, those words mean to fall down and lay prostrate at the foot of somebody. At the very least, kneeling with head bowed. That's what it means. It doesn't mean singing songs, although that's nice. So this man came to him, kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic. The word can mean lunatic, demoniac. The actual translation of the word means moonstruck. Moonstruck. And that's not so crazy as it might sound to us, because there has been debate over the centuries, and still today, You know, we talk about the full moon and how wolves will howl at the full moon and how there's a lot of activity in the animal world when there's a full moon. There's also some evidence that there's changes in the behavior of people during the time of the full moon. And the, the word moonstruck, again, meaning also lunatic, demoniac, epileptic, that word is there because people believed often that epilepsy was caused by the moon. And there is some evidence for that, but certainly it's not conclusive. And here we know that there's another cause. Again, I'll read verse 15. Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and suffers severely, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. So I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. Then Jesus answered and said, Oh, faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. That's Matthew's rendition of this story. Verses 14, 15, 16, 17, and 18. But it wouldn't be right for us to look at this text alone without seeing what both Mark and Luke say about the same event. In order for us to get the full picture, but we'll only look at certain parts, the parts uh, that Matthew didn't highlight. 
In Mark chapter 9, verses 14 to 27, it says, When he came to the disciples, he saw a great multitude around them, and scribes were disputing with them. So scribes were arguing, debating with the nine disciples that had stayed at the bottom of the mountain. And then he went to the scribes. Jesus went to the scribes and said, What are you discussing with them? So he was holding them to account. What are you talking to my guys for? And then we learn some more. When the man comes to Jesus, he says, Teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit. Hmm. And whenever, wherever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. So we learned some things about how this condition was manifesting itself. One, that he made, he made the boy mute. And other, that he threw him down, foam at the mouth. I mean, it was pretty horrible. And then he said, the father said, and when he, that means the demon that was possessing the boy, when he saw him, when he saw him, when he saw Jesus, immediately the spirit convulsed him, the boy, and fell on the ground and wallowed foaming at the mouth. So Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And often he has thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. So it's interesting, the father asked Jesus, but if you can do anything, and Jesus answers, if you can believe, all things are possible. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, something that I have cried out to the Lord many times. He says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Isn't, don't we all feel that sometimes? Don't we all experience that? Lord, I do believe, but, 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 but please help my unbelief. It's a very honest prayer. A very honest thing to say to the Lord. Again, because he knows us perfectly, entirely, completely. So he knows about that. He knows about the belief that we do have, and he knows about the unbelief that we also have. And then when Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, deaf and dumb spirit. So he couldn't hear, and he couldn't speak. 
deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. That's a bit different than just he rebuked him and he came out. Then the spirit cried out, convulsed the boy greatly, and came out of him. And he became, the boy became as one dead, so that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. So that gives us a little more information than we got from Matthew. Now we'll look at Luke's, not quite as long as Mark's part. Luke chapter 9, verses 37 to 43, says, Now it happened on the next day, that's the day after they had come down the mountain, because they were still walking about 20 miles. It happened on the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, the man told Jesus, He is my only child. It says it convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and it departs from him with great difficulty, bruising him. So the, this demon is beaten up on this kid. And as he, that's the son, was still coming, the demon threw him down and convulsed him. Then Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit healed the child, and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the majesty of God. So, you see, we get a much more complete picture of the story by looking at the parallel scriptures in other parts of the Bible. I bring that up because this is something that we should always do when we study God's Word. Either we should look at parallel scriptures as we did here or scriptures that speak about the same thing as what we are studying. I'll give you an example. An example. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 1, 2, and 3, and then on to 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Who is this talking about? He's talking about Jesus Christ. He says, all things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. Then going on to verse 14, and the word became flesh. That's the incarnation. And dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Remember, John was one of the three disciples that were up on that mountain, and they beheld the glory of Jesus Christ. And then in Colossians 
chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Speaking of Jesus, Paul says, For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. So, if you're studying creation, obviously the first place you're going to go is Genesis chapter 1. But then if you look at these other scriptures, we'll find out that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We could just as easily say, in the beginning, God the Son created the heavens and the earth. Because it was Jesus Christ before his incarnation. The eternal God. You see, clearly by studying these verses, we learn that Jesus Christ is God the person of the Trinity who directly created everything that has been created and that all of creation was created for Jesus, for God the Son. Think about that as you look around. Believe it or not, I know this surprises some people, but creation wasn't created for me or for you or for anybody else. Creation was created for Jesus Christ. God the Son. But let's go back to our text. The man says, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic, or moonstruck, as I said, lunatic, and suffer severely, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. The son's epilepsy was caused by a demon. Though, of course, that certainly isn't the cause of every case of epilepsy, either then or today. Mark 9.25 tells us that the boy was made deaf and dumb by this demon. Then the father said, So I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. You know, often Jesus' followers fail. We fail. You and I fail. But our Lord never fails. You find that in Zephaniah 3 5 and Isaiah 42 4. Our Lord never fails. So it's always wise to quickly go straight to our Lord when we fail. Now, we know that on previous occasions, Jesus' disciples did cast out demons. We read that in Luke 10. They cast out demons when Jesus had sent them out. But here, in this instance, and with this demon, they were unable to cast the demon out of the boy. 
This is most likely because there are ranks of demonic powers. We learn that in Ephesians 6. So some demons are stronger, they're more resistant than others. And since the disciples had been given the authority to cast out demons before, again in Luke and in Matthew 10, we read that a couple of months ago, evidently this demon was more difficult than most. The failure of Jesus' disciples to cast out this particular demon can be seen actually as a strong lesson for them and for us, for you and for me. It taught them to not become casual about using their spiritual gifts, which would lead them and us into the rut of just doing mechanical ministry. In other words, ministry that doesn't rely on our Lord. It isn't empowered by the Holy Spirit. This is a huge problem in the church, and it's very easy to fall into. I know in my 44 years as a Christian that there have been times when I've looked at myself and I've realized that I've fallen into mechanical ministry. I went running to the Lord quickly, confessed, and asked him to renew. Renew his presence, his motivation, his power, his illumination into my ministry as he had done for so long. It's a huge problem in the church, and you might remember that too. When you do, don't go beating up on yourself. Run to Christ. Tell him about it. Confess it because it is sin. Have him cleanse you and then talk to him about the help that he's already given us in the Holy Spirit and how we need to be very conscious of what the Holy Spirit says to us. This, this episode also reminded the disciples that Jesus, our Lord, is infinitely stronger, wiser, and more constantly interacting with the spiritual realm than they were, the disciples, and that we are. Jesus was constantly interacting with the spiritual realm as well as the physical realm. He was busy in ways that we have no way to see. And we should be too. I've talked about this before, and some of you, I think I gave this book to you, but a book by Brother Lawrence and, and, and uh, Frank Laubach called Practicing the Presence. And the whole book is about practicing the presence of God in your life every moment of every day. That doesn't mean you're not doing the things you need to be doing, but you're always aware that 
the Lord is with you. The Lord is within you. He's right there to help you, to guide you, to protect you, to warn you. Always. And practicing his presence is an incredible thing to be able to do. And we can do it. We can do it. Because number one, it keeps us on the straight and narrow. Because whatever we do and whatever we think, God is watching, God is listening, God knows absolutely everything. So when I have those thoughts in my mind about other drivers on the road, God's right there. Uh, Larry, you shouldn't have done that. You shouldn't have thought that. I didn't say anything. I know, but I heard you. And I go, yeah, I, 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 I know you did. Another thing about this episode is that it it taught them and and it teaches us to always reach out, needing God's presence, relying on the Holy Spirit to do actually anything for the kingdom in obedience to our Lord and his word. Maybe you, like me, I mean, I've watched and listened to hundreds of pastors over the years. And it's interesting, and one of the reasons I, I say this is one of the spiritual gifts that the Lord gave me was the gift of discernment. Um, and with that, and I know every Christian has discernment, even if it's not given to you as a special power for ministry. Um, you can tell by just listening to and even watching some of these people who stand behind pulpits not knowing at all what danger they are placing themselves in by, by, by speaking and saying things that are simply not biblical, they aren't from God, they aren't true. But they use that pulpit and they use that Bible to make it seem like what they're saying is from God. even when it's not. And these people are not relying on the Holy Spirit. They're not relying on Christ. They're not relying on God at all. At all. They're relying entirely on themselves and their buddies that they listen to and they each repeat each other's stuff. You know it was... I know you know it. You've had that experience where you've been sitting there and listening and okay, you know, and all of a sudden the guy will say something or the gal who shouldn't be up there before a mixed audience, they'll say something and something is going to go click in your mind. Something's going to say, whoa, what? Did he actually say that? And you might feel a a rumbling in your gut. Something is wrong. You might not be able to tell exactly what it is, 
But the Holy Spirit has just told you, watch out, something's wrong happening here. You've been there, you've done that. You need to be aware of it and not just toss it aside and not just excuse the guy. Because if they're standing behind God's pulpit, they are responsible to God for every word that comes out of their mouth. Every word. I feel that pressure every week. Every time I go to a Bible study, I'm responsible to God for every word that comes out of my mouth. And so are others. So are Sunday school teachers, Bible study leaders, home group leaders. Actually, every Christian is responsible to God for every word that comes out of our mouths. And finally, this episode, it taught the disciples and it teaches us to quickly go to Jesus with our problems. I'm afraid I'm one of these people who has to learn this lesson over and over. Maybe you are too. But when there's a problem, my first instinct is to worry, is to try to figure out how to solve the problem instead of what should I be doing? Taking the problem to Christ. Talking to him about it. Asking him for his wisdom. And ultimately laying that problem at his feet. Not being irresponsible, but laying it at his feet and being able to walk away. Not abandoning the problem, but be able to walk away and have a life and trust that God will help you to take care of that problem. And as we'll see next, though they were confused and disturbed when they were unable to cast out the demon, they still hadn't considered the state of their faith, which Jesus is going to address in the next section that we'll look at. But first, we need to take a look at Jesus' rather frustrated outburst in verse 17 when he says, Oh, faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Now, why did Jesus say that? And to whom? To the disciples? To the father of the epileptic? To the scribes? To the multitude? We aren't told. So all we have is a few facts and some speculation. Fact. His disciples, after nearly three and a half years under his teachings, and his empowering of them, <coughs> excuse me, were not able to cast out the demon. Fact. Fact. The disciples were disturbed at what they were unable to do. That makes sense. 
fact. Jesus knew that he was soon to be crucified, resurrected, and then ascend to his Father, leaving these disciples behind and bringing his earthly ministry to a close with all the teaching, ministering, miracles, healing, and delivery. He knew that was going to happen. Another fact, the epileptic's father was desperate for his son to be healed. And after the disciples' failure, he ran to Jesus. Another fact, the ever-present multitude had witnessed the disciples' failure. And they were now watching what Jesus would do. So Jesus' frustration is probably with the entire unbelieving and unresponsive generation that was rejecting him and the wonderful things he'd done, just as our generation is. But it is widely believed that Jesus was not speaking to his disciples when he said that. I'm not saying that he wasn't. There's some other evidence too, but I'm going to read you something that John Gill wrote. He was a pastor, teacher, author, speaker back in the 1700s. As he puts it, not to the disciples, but to the father of the child and those who were with him and the scribes that were present, disputing with the disciples, upbraiding them with their weakness and triumphing, triumphing over them. O oh, faithless and perverse generation! It was a way of speaking which was never used of the disciples. And indeed, it couldn't be properly said of them. For though they appeared to be men of little faith, yet not faithless, nor were they so rebellious or stubborn or perverse as here represented, though there was a great deal of perverseness in them. But the characters better suit the body of the Jewish nation, who on account of the incredulity of this man and those that were present, being of the same temper with them, are exclaimed against by Jesus in words which were long ago spoken of their ancestors in Deuteronomy chapter 32. And from whence they seem to be taken. He's saying that Jesus is possibly taking these words from what Moses said in Deuteronomy. He said, a perverse and crooked generation. Speaking to the Israelites who were being so troublesome. A perverse and crooked generation. And then Jesus said, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Upbraiding them, the father, scribes, crowd, with the length of time he had been with them in which so many wonderful works had been done among them, 
and yet they remained unbelieving and incorrigible, and intimating that his patience and long-suffering would not always continue, and that in a short time he should be gone from them, and they should no longer enjoy the benefit of his ministry and miracles. But wrath should come upon them to the uttermost. But, however, while he was with them, notwithstanding all their unbelief and obstinacy, he should go on to do good. Now, know this 18th century writing, but he's making it clear that Jesus couldn't have been speaking of the disciples. He must have been speaking to the others, the Father, the crowd, the scribes, even the nation as a whole. And he makes a pretty good case. But now, even so, perhaps as part of Jesus' general frustration, he's frustrated with his own disciples as well, as we'll see. He was frustrated that his disciples didn't have more faith. We read in verses 19 to 21, Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? So Jesus said to them, Because of your unbelief, for assuredly I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Because of your unbelief, Jesus told his disciples that their failure in casting out the demon was because of their unbelief. Now, since God has dealt to each one a measure of faith, that's in Romans 12, it was their inability to properly use the faith they'd been given. There's a lesson for you and me there. This inability for them, and often for us, is because of a lack of unswerving trust in our Lord. You see, it wasn't weak faith, but faith limited by doubt in God, not by placing their full trust in him. As we read earlier, Jesus is the absolute creator. So he not only created the angels who chose to rebel with Satan, becoming demons, but he also had and still has total absolute authority over them. You notice every time he confronted a demon, the demon did what he said. He did what he told him to do because the demon was under Jesus. He was boss. The disciples failed because they didn't base their faith fully on their Lord and his power. Probably the disciples had tried to cast out the demon with their own ability rather than God's. Hear me here. 
they probably thought, we did this before, so we could do it again. Oops. That is called mechanical ministry. We need to remember that every time we are engaged in spiritual work and especially in spiritual battle. You might remember, this goes back a year or so, I guess, back in our study of Joshua, how after the great God-empowered victory over Jericho, you remember the walls fell down and they just rushed right in. Total victory. After that victory, some Israelites went without seeking God's direction and power to attack the city of Ai. Remember that? It was a foolish presumption, and God allowed them to be soundly defeated. The same is true for us. If we neglect God in our spiritual battles, or actually in anything we do, we are fools and just maybe experience failure or defeat or both. We need to remember that every time we are engaged in spiritual work and especially again in spiritual battle. Then Jesus goes on and tells his disciples, for assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. So, they don't need more faith. Faith as a mustard seed, one of the smallest of seeds, tiny. Even if they had that much faith, and as we're told in Romans, we're all given a measure of faith. I believe we're all given the same faith. And here he's saying, even if you had just a tiny bit, you could move a mountain. He's telling them again that they don't need more faith, but they need to use their faith properly. What matters most is what our faith is in the object of our faith, which must be our Lord. It is our faith plus the power of God that moves mountains. Now, being an uprooter of mountains was a common phrase in rabbinic teaching of Jesus' time. They used the idea of moving a mountain as a metaphor for doing something extremely difficult. And that's what Jesus is doing here. As a metaphor for doing something extremely difficult. Meaning, not that moving a mountain would be ordinarily or ever done in a literal sense by the apostles, but that they should be able to do things equally difficult and as seemingly impossible if they would but place their faith in the hands of God. I don't know about you, but I suffer from this condition every time I pray for the world, for God to save every unbeliever on the planet, 
from my perspective, that's huge. What do you think that is from God's perspective? Nothing. But for us, it's like moving a mountain. That's why we need to place our faith more in God and less in what we or mankind or governments or whatever can do, or church organizations or whatever. We need to place our trust in God to do those kind of impossible things. Remember, the Bible tells us that God would that no one should perish, but that everyone would come to repentance, therefore salvation. Would we feel weak or powerless as Christians? We should examine our faith. We should examine our reliance on God and make sure that we are trusting his power, not our own ability to produce results. And that's especially a huge problem with American Christians. Because as Americans, we have this independence, this bootstrap mentality, I can do it on my own, and blah, blah, blah. And to actually admit that we depend on somebody else is seen as a sign of weakness. No, it's just a sign of our limitation as human beings. We depend on somebody who has no limitations and who can do anything. How many times in the Bible are we told nothing is impossible for God? That's what Gabriel told Mary. But Mary said, how could this be since I, I don't know a man? <laughs> Pretty awesome. Pretty awesome. Jesus ends his discussion with verse 21, which is suspect as not being in the original manuscripts of Matthew, but it is recorded in every manuscript of Mark. So we're going to look at it briefly because it is the words of Christ, perhaps from the other gospel. Now, people have talked about that because Matthew was one of the disciples, but he wasn't up on the mountain. Peter was up on the mountain and most people believe that the Gospel of Mark is the Gospel of Peter, that Peter told Mark all this information. And uh, very possibly, Peter made sure to get this in, whereas uh, Matthew, probably not so much. You see, we show, well, what's the statement? However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. We show our faith in and our dependence on God through prayer and fasting. These practices and habits of faith demonstrate our dependence on Jesus. Prayer and fasting also reveal an earnestness before God they can often bring answers to our prayers. We're telling God we're serious about this. 
And he knows our hearts, so he also knows if we're faking it. Unfortunately, in contrast, we often pray so lackadaisically and perfunctorily that what we're really saying to our Lord, listen to this, what we're really saying to our Lord, often with our prayers and our fasting, we're saying to our Lord that we'd like for him to care more about things than we do. Think about that. Prayer and fasting demonstrate a strong willingness to identify with the problem, the afflicted person, or the serious issue that we are praying and fasting for. They also reveal our knowledge of the presence and strength of evil in the demonic domain. as well as our desire to enter into the battle against it and to fight and deny ourselves for the victory. Undergirding all in these efforts must be a solid, even desperate dependence on our Lord God. If you're praying and fasting the way that you should be, You've got a bullseye on you, and the devil doesn't like it, and you will have opposition. It'll often come from your own flesh, you know, especially the first one or two times you really have those hunger pains. Oh, I don't know if I could do this. It's uh, no, this is beyond me. It's for somebody else to do. But you get past that, and then it'll come again, once or twice. But it's interesting. Interesting, years ago I went to what were called prayer and fasting conferences. They were huge, great speakers, no lunch break, just things of water all around the auditorium. No lunch break. And the man who put these together, you've heard of Campus Crusade for Christ, well, the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ, he's in heaven now, Bill Bright, he is the one who arranged for all of these prayer and fasting conferences. And at least for the three that I went to, in the 40 days prior to that conference, Bill Bright fasted, except for water. And I'll tell you, when he spoke, It was as if the ground was shaking. The power of the Holy Spirit, the power of God was so evident in him. It was a wonder. It was such a wonder. Now, as we move on to the next verses, the scene totally changes to another day as they were in Galilee, probably in Capernaum. Verses 22 and 23. Now, while they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, his disciples, the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him, 
and the third day he will be raised up. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. How many times have we read this, even just in the last chapter? Now, although Jesus told his disciples this fairly often, they seemed to become deaf whenever Jesus spoke of his betrayal, death, and resurrection, except for Peter when he allowed Satan to influence him into rebuking Christ. It was only after Jesus' resurrection that they got it. Read that in Luke 24, verses 6 to 8. And even then, they needed to be reminded by angels of what Jesus had told them. But to their credit, they did hear the first part of what Jesus said and were therefore exceedingly sorrowful. But for some reason, they were totally oblivious to the second triumphant and victorious thing that Jesus said. They missed the excited anticipation of their Lord's resurrection. It's like they were hanging out on Good Friday and they never got to Resurrection Sunday. You know, there are people like that. We need to help them because there is joy in our faith. You know, during that Holy Week, every year, we, we honor the donkey ride down the Mount of Olives. We hiss at Judas's betrayal. We bow and weep. And in some churches even put a, a black hood over the cross in the front of the church. We bow and weep in conviction and thankfulness at the crucifixion and burial. But we joyously celebrate the resurrection of our Lord, our King, our Savior, as he blows away the stone, having defeated death and the devil, and showing us what will happen to us, to those of us who have surrendered to him, who have answered his incredible invitation to join him in eternal life and to be blessed by his eternal presence in us by the Holy Spirit at the very moment we give our hearts and lives to him. So the disciples got enough of what Jesus said to be sad, but missed the eternal glorious part until they saw him after the cross. Indeed, Thomas wouldn't believe it until they touched Jesus and they heard his familiar voice and even ate with him. And in Thomas's case, on that Sunday a week after Easter, Jesus told Thomas, hey, stick your fingers in these holes. Stick your head in this gash in my side and know that I am real and alive.
Thomas, of course, responded, My Lord and my God. You see, in great awe, the disciples spent much time with Jesus, off and on for 50 days after his resurrection, until after being specifically commissioned by their risen Lord, they stood on the Mount of Olives watching as Jesus rose into the sky and beyond, ascending back to his Father, sitting on his throne at the right hand of his Father. God the Son, who had left heaven to experience all of human life except sin in order to be our perfect sacrifice now returned to heaven to God the Father to prepare a place for us to intercede for us along with the Holy Spirit And that Holy Spirit is with us still. And if I read Scripture correctly, He will never leave us. He will always be indwelling us. God will always be literally a part of who we are. Because of what Jesus did. Heavenly Father, once again, I thank you for, for the details, the specifics, the wonders, the awesome things that you tell us through your word. And Father, I, I confess when I first looked at the text that we were to study this morning, I just shook my head and say, what am I going to say? But you see, always after I do that, it comes, Lord, you've got to help me. Lord, you've, you've got to show me what you want me to say, what you want me to see. Father, you, you always show me what I need to see as your child before you allow me to put whatever part of that you want me to share with the people of this fellowship. And I thank you so much, Lord. I thank you how you just take your words on the page and you just open them up before me. I am so blessed. And I thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.